continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse with cops. Welcome back to Everything Just Changed. I'm Bryce Hales, and I'm here with my friend Brad Edwards. We are pastors in the Western U.S., and we are seeking to help you navigate faithfulness to Jesus in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world. And we're in a series in our podcast right now where we're asking the question, how do we receive rather than achieve our identity? As Western culture is struggling through issues of polarization and the weaponization of politics, Brad and I have been highlighting the ways that individualism, this idea that you can be anything you want to be as long as you remain true to yourself, that that idea is eroding Western society from both the right and the left. And so today we're bringing you the second part of the conversation that we started last week talking about gospel identity. While both traditional and modern identities are achieved through what we do, gospel identity is something that we don't achieve It is something we receive based on what God says about us. And this creates an entirely different orientation to life. So if you haven't heard it already, you're going to want to go back and listen to last week's episode first, Gospel Identity Part 1, where we talk about what a gospel identity is and we start talking about why gospel identity is unique. Today we're going to pick right back up where we left off and give you two more reasons gospel identity is unique before asking the so what question. The third thing that I think is great about a gospel identity is that it provides a unique flexibility in relationship to people and cultures. So in a traditional identity, you get your value by the way that you relate to your people, whoever those people are. So your religion, your race, your social status, your profession. And so even if you don't want to do this, you wind up looking down on people who don't fit into the same group in the same way right? If you're a rich person, you look down on those who are poor. If you're poor, you look down on those people who are materialistic and consumers and have sold their soul to make money. On the other hand, in the modern identity, you just affirm everyone and everything. But when you do that, you don't realize that what you're actually doing is elevating a modern Western cultural value above all others. In other words, if all cultures should be valued and affirmed, then why don't you value and affirm the culture that says, if you're not like us, then you're less valuable than we are? We even kind of tackled this in the deconstruction roundtable from a couple of weeks ago because the process of deconstruction that, and there are, like, like we said, there are multiple different flavors of this, but one of those flavors that is probably most problematic is the one that says, because evangelicalism or because Christianity has all these Western associations, I am going to deconstruct and figure out who God is or who Jesus is based on my own definitions and determine it myself and not be so constrained by culture. The problem being, that is the most Western individualist thing you could possibly do. So if your point and your hope is to decolonize your faith, you're literally doubling down on the culture and not the transcendent truth of your faith. I could get in trouble for saying this, but I think this is an area in which the traditional identity is actually a little bit more honest than the modern identity because the traditional identity says, no, our our way of seeing this is actually better. The modern identity would never affirm that, but it does it in a, you know, in an unconscious way. And then what ends up having to happen 
is that modern identity ends up, what it ends up doing is affirming diversity in a shallow sense, but then relativizing anything that falls out of sort of modern progressive values. So sure, bring your traditional ways of dressing and your language and your food and your, your culture, by which we mean like your cultural artifacts. But please understand mm. that anybody is allowed to sleep with anybody that they want. That's not open for debate. It doesn't matter if that's what your traditional culture says. That's what your non-Western culture says. That we know. And so we, we affirm sort of the like – uh, the trappings of cultural diversity, but we actually, the modern identity actually relativizes the substance on which so much of that diversity is based. Well, and gosh, maybe another way of saying that is, yeah, I agree with you. I think traditional identity formation approaches are more honest with kind of the external objective world, but naive and, and, like deficient, infantilized in terms of the internal emotional world. And mm -hmm. I think it's flipped for mm -hmm. the modern identity. It's very, it's much more honest about the internal world and the emotional world, but it is, it is naive and truncated and it ends up being relativistic in terms of the, the way it expresses itself. But at, at its core, it's actually a deep epistemological immaturity. Yeah. That's <laughs> that doesn't actually do full business with the reality around us. And it's remarkably privileged, actually, yeah. like yes. because it requires a very comfortable, almost place of superhuman agency to actually go on believing that way. That's, that's how modern traditional identities approach people and cultures. How does gospel identity provide a flexibility with regard to people and cultures? Well, Gospel identity isn't based on fitting in with a group, and it's not achieved by looking at how unique we all are. And so gospel hmm. identity allows us to say, you know, there are certain ways that, for instance, an Asian person looks at the world that I, as a white person, really need to learn from that are intuitive to a, an Asian culture that are hmm. not intuitive to my culture. And there are certain ways that I look at the world given my background, experience, cultural expectations, et cetera, that a person who grew up in a significantly different culture is going to look at and say, those aren't just really strange. I actually think they're wrong. They're probably bad for you. And I can listen to that and I can learn from that. I, I could probably give so many examples and th this isn't even racially based, but uh, you know, when I was 22, I moved to Scotland and lived there for three years. And there are just so many ways in which things that I took for granted as this is just the way that you do things. We're challenged. Like on a daily basis, I remember we, we went to try to open a bank account. And because uh, like we were living there and we thought it'd be good to have a bank account where we could deposit and receive money so we could pay our bills and stuff. And the, the bank manager says, well, like, do you have references? And we're like, references? Like, we just moved here. Like, we don't know anybody. And, <laughs> but, but we have money and we'd like to deposit it in your bank. <laughs> And, and most the, people want our money. And the, right. And because that's as an American, right? We're like, I got money. I can do what I want. And they're like, well, we need to know if you're trustworthy. And so we need to know who your references are. And we're like, this is going to be really challenging, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. So what, what do we do? So, I, you know, I don't know that that's a matter of right or wrong or, or, or anything, but y it would be so easy to just say, well, these people are stupid and they don't really understand how the world works.
right? That's that's kind of the the response that we want to push back with, operating mm-hmm. out of the the sort of traditional identity. The gospel identity allows us to say you know, maybe there's something that I need to learn here. Maybe there's something that another culture is able to see that I'm not able to see. And I can listen to that and I can learn from that. Let me ask and and maybe even push back a little bit on that, just because I can imagine someone hearing us say that and saying, I'm not a Christian, but I am not so arrogant that that would be my reaction to someone asking for my references. I can affirm that this is a different culture. I can become culturally self-aware, have the cultural intelligence to be able to recognize this difference and not make that like a, you know, yeah. I I guess I would say that was probably like, uh, maybe that's not the best example, right? I'm sure I'm probably in the, in the, in in the moment, you know, there's probably a much more significant example. I think at the end of the day, gospel identity allows you to listen to and learn from and appreciate people and cultures that are different than you are without needing to some way say mine is the best or in the modern identity, sort of appreciating the superficial features and ignoring the substance. Even another way to say that maybe is that I think it's pretty clear that like if we're going to characterize the traditional identity is prone towards judgmentalism, but you know what? The modern identity is too. And honestly, it's getting much, much worse. And if you need proof of that, just look at Twitter. It's it's mind-blowing the the judgmentalism that is being expressed by people with very progressive values saying, no, you just, you do you, it, it, it's, it's toxic. It, it's like taking the air out of the room and there's nowhere, there's no, like you cannot disagree with anybody for fear of being, you know, outed or canceled. Well, yeah. And gosh, that's, that's the thing that is so toxic about this and, and is not limited just to, to the cultural or political left it, that, it's very clear, even within the American church, that a modernist approach to identity has has kind of like leaven uh, or like yeast has leavened the church in a lot of ways too, because there is so much of a source sourcing of our truth and authority in how we feel about it. Uh, we talked before about how just insane it is that Christians could possibly say, well, even if the election wasn't stolen, I still believe it was. And that is enough to justify mm-hmm. outrage, right? It's almost like the left and right isn't just spectrum. It's actually a circle and you go far enough to the left or right, you, they end up meeting mm-hmm. on the other side. And I think we're seeing a lot of that, that modernist approach to identity actually in some ways replace the traditional identity in places that it it's now looking very different, even though yes. the values that are expressed are the same values, the way it's being expressed betrays a a switch. Yes. And I could say so much more about that, but we're not going to get into politics right now. Oh my gosh. No. <laughs> well, yeah. As much as we cannot get into a politics when it's the, now the civil religion. I feel like you, you could hear somebody say, okay, so modern identity is judgmental. Traditional identity is judgmental, but Christians are, are, are pretty judgmental too. And I think the, we have to say, yeah, of course that is the case. And the, the only way that we can respond to that is to say, you know, to the extent to which that is true, it means that we're not living out of a functional gospel identity. That whatever we mm. might say about our belief in the gospel, it's not shaping our identity to the extent that we would hope it would in the way that we're interacting with others. 
Hmm. This is the fourth thing yeah. that I think is just fantastic about the gospel identity. And I, I, if I can say this, I think this point might be worth the price of the whole, the price of admission to this whole episode, because I think this is so important and so necessary. And I think that if there's one area that Christians could like hear and embrace and, and work on, it would be this. One reason that the gospel identity is great is because it provides a unique approach to limits. In a traditional mm-hmm. identity, you really get your identity in relationship to limits because your group, your culture has certain rules and you have to obey those rules if you're going to be a good person, right? In modern identity, all limits are bad. They're horrible. Get rid of them. They're evil. Any limitation placed on you must be rejected. Any appetite must be indulged. But that is a recipe for unhealth of certain, you know, greater or lesser extent. But a person who says any appetite that I have for alcohol must be indulged is an alcoholic. A person who says, I mean, how about this? Any appetite for power that I have must be indulged. I mean, are we going to affirm that? Clearly, progressive culture, modern culture is not going to want to go down that road. But on the basis of what? Gospel identity says, taken to an extreme, even my best desires can become unhealthy. And so I embrace my limits as God's goodness for my life. By the way, spoiler alert, my wife has a book coming out about this uh, in the fall. I was wondering if you're going to bring that up, because if you weren't, I was. (laughs) It's called The Spacious Life by Ashley Hales. Yes. Yes. Order it, please. It's fantastic. Okay, think about this. I have limits because I am a human being and I am therefore finite. I have limits because of my circumstances. I live in certain places, I, I, in a certain place. I have certain resources available to me. And I have limits based on what God's word tells me is good and true and beautiful. This idea in our culture that says I can live without limits and be whatever I want to be, what you think about me doesn't matter, what the Bible says doesn't matter, what biology dictates doesn't matter, what is actually true doesn't matter. That idea, it sounds like freedom until you think about it for like half a second. It ultimately is resulting in anxiety and depression and polarization and loneliness at unprecedented levels. Can I harp on that for just a minute? Because we did an episode where we talked about a, which by the time this episode airs, an article I wrote for Mere Orthodoxy should be public and published on this very thing. But this idea that institutions that used to be, you know, we refer to them as brick and mortar institutions, that was very much born out of a traditional approach to identity. But it was seen in many ways as sub, like subhuman in that there's a skepticism of institutions that is very, like sees it as toxic and an abuse of power, et cetera. But we've replaced that with these counterfeit institutions of like social media and what globalization has sparked in a lot of ways. But the modernist identity approach that makes social media platforms so attractive is this idea that if we define reality according to how we feel about it, then we're not going to be subhuman. We're going to be superhuman. Like we can be anything. Mm. And this pandemic we've talked about, and Mm -hmm. we just re-released an episode with Chris Bruno because, and he talked about so helpfully about how we have been operating as superhumans. And this pandemic is going to pull the rug out from under all of the like technological tools we have been enabled with to think Mm -hmm. that we can be superhuman. And what you're saying is actually, you know, to be finite, to have limits, 
it's not subhuman. It's not superhuman. It's actually to be fully human. And that is, that is something mm, that this, yes. this hyper connectivity we've had, and especially disembodied flavors of it, the anxiety that you just mentioned that that cultivates is this gap between mm-hmm. a real fully human humanity and the superhuman expectations we have been expecting of ourselves and of each other. And until we can mm-hmm. embrace mm-hmm. those limits and constraints through a gospel identity that says you don't have to be superhuman to be lovable or cherished, that anxiety is just going to get worse and continue. Yeah. I mean, I think I I, heard, I remember hearing Pete Scazzaro say this, but if you go all the way back to the beginning, in the, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were told... <laughs> You can eat of any tree, any of the fruit in the garden, but you, there's the one tree, the knowledge of good and evil that is off limits, right? So even pre-fall in paradise, mm. human beings are created in the image of God as limited creatures. And here's the thing that I think if Christians could understand and grow in this reality, I think it would do a world of good that... Hmm. The Bible is our standard to understand which limits bring us into a more flourishing life. What is it? Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And so part of the, the problem in our fallenness is that we, we buck limits because we don't, we don't like to be limited, but we also, we need to embrace God's limits as goodness for us because we don't have the superhuman capacity to determine what is good and what is right and what is beautiful for ourselves. And every culture defines this differently, but human sexuality is the issue in which our culture wants to utterly reject the Bible's teaching. And Christians kind of want to be like, well, some of these are like moral rules and some of them we we just have to submit to even though we we don't like them ourselves, right? But the Christian approach to scripture has to be to say, okay, even if I don't understand why God said this, I believe that God's word is the, is the, the limiting standard that leads me into the, well, the spacious life, to quote my wife's uh, book title. Gospel identity, therefore, allows us to look at the limits of nature and the limits of God's word and say, I don't earn salvation, I don't build my worth on my obedience, and yet I can see the beauty and wisdom that comes from submitting to my limitations. It's so funny, just as you're, as you're describing that and explaining that, there's a part of me that's like, yeah, that's really bad news, and, and almost like counterintuitive to the extreme to so much of our culture, conservative and progressive, doesn't matter. But if we're parents and we've, or we know a parent, which is literally anyone who's listening, because you have parents, right? Like, you know that there are moments when either you or your child has said, why? And asked why? Like my son, Ransom, he's four. He's asking why for everything right now. And there are some things that it's just like, I can't just cause. Just because I just need you to listen to me. I'm not saying there's not a reason, but I can't explain it to you because you're four. Yeah, exactly. We don't have the capacity to comprehend. And if we have a God who is big enough and more and powerful enough to create all things, and then also in a certain way with an intentional design, then we also have a God who is big enough and 
transcendent enough that he might have reasons that we cannot comprehend Mm -hmm. and in his goodness knows that we're not able to understand it. The only reason why now, and, and again, as I'm saying that, I know that there have been many people in this world, many of them are in our church, who have had that kind of a justification or reasoning leveraged or weaponized against mm. them to abuse them. Mm-hmm. And that is why like, it is so important that character and virtue matters, that we have a God who is good enough that you can trust him, that it's not abusive when he exercises his power in that way because of his goodness. The de- the determination is not whether or not one has power, and so we, we like it's not actually going to be helpful for us to 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 take God off of the throne and elevate ourselves because we lack the character and holiness that God does, and mm. that is the only way we can trust Him to exercise that in ways that flourish us. And when we put limits on people that are not limits that God put on us, that is when w- power is abused. Yeah. And and that is why traditional and modernist understandings of identity and how it is shaped and formed is not at all helpful for flourishing. But this yeah. is, this gospel identity absolutely yeah. is. Yeah, it allows us, I mean, maybe, I, I mean, I've given four reasons, but <laughs> it allows us to live in the world that actually is, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Where we can treat other people with dignity and respect, whether we agree with them or not, we can... You know, we we can live as human beings that are limited in our various ways. We can not stuff our emotions in unhealthy ways, not be controlled by them. It does. It's a truth that does not require a utopia in order to be true Mm. and helpful. That's good. Okay. So then the question, final question, uh, how is gospel identity strengthened? If this identity is not achieved by anything we do, but it's received from God based on who... Uh, based on who Christ is and based on being created in his image, then how we don't have to do anything to achieve it, right? But how is it strengthened? How do we experience it more fully? The, The answer, I think, is imagination, attention, community, and repetition. So think about this. How does the modern world shape your identity? Well, it, it takes up all of your time. <laughs> you know, social media is the best example of this. And so oh you gosh. are going to be um, shaped in a modern, into a modern identity because your attention is being shaped. Your, uh, your imagination is being shaped. All of your time is being sucked up by social media, um, by other things. But social media is just the most prominent example. And then it shapes our ima- imagination through stories. I mean, we haven't talked a lot about this. Um, in this episode, in this series. But the thing is uh, that it's not like anybody sits you down in third grade and says, well, there are these three options. You can have a traditional identity, you can have a modern identity, or you could have a gospel identity. And we recommend you choose the (laughs) modern identity, right? (laughs) Yeah. it, it's it's not it's it's not communicated that way. It's it's shaped um, through our imagination. It shapes our imagination through stories. You know, Disney. I, I I know like people are gonna hate me for this, but like every Disney story is pumping the modern identity of the you know young girl who leaves her home and her traditional culture and goes and finds herself. Just let it go, Bryce. Let it go. Exactly. Exactly. So stories in the general sense. I think honestly, we have to say this porn is a huge part of this. And the repetition of all of these things, they ingrain 
the modern identity in our imagination, in our attention, repetition makes them more potent. And what they do is they make real relationships harder. It makes it harder to relate to real life flesh people, (laughs) embodied people, right? When our understanding of how relationships should work have been shaped by fictional narratives, porn, and social media, okay? The, the effect of the modern identity in, in shaping us in the world that we live in is that we're surrounded by people, but we're increasingly lonely. Hmm. Christian identity formation or spiritual formation, it involves ways of recapturing the imagination and attention of modern people and reforming them around God and our neighbors through specific practices, community, and repetition. So imagination, attention, community, and repetition. Imagination, okay, scripture and prayer. We have to immerse ourselves in the Bible stories and themes. In prayer, we ask God to reshape us and reform us in light of who he is. I mean, I've mentioned this already, but the Psalms are full of examples of this, and I think are great templates for how to do this. Uh, Psalm 6, 23, 27, 31, 42, and 43, like I mentioned, 64, um, are, are just great templates for how to bring ourselves into God's presence and ask him to reshape us. You know, using the, the, the phrases that are the, the language you've, you've used about entering more fully into reality. Hmm. Community church and hospitality. Here's the reality. I mean, every, every um, parent knows this as well, especially I am um, at the point where I have like uh, early teenagers and every parent learns this with, with uh, when your kids get to a certain age, you will tend to become like the people that you hang out with. I read this a while ago that on a different front, if your closest friends gain five pounds, you probably will gain five pounds as well. If your closest friends start working out, you will probably start working out as well. You tend to become like the five-ish people that you are closest to. Okay, so the time that we invest in church, in community, is going to shape us. But also, I think this is critically important and is often more of like an afterthought for a lot of Christians. Hospitality is crucial here because if you only hang out with other Christians, it just makes you super weird. Um, <laughs> it, it's, that's, it's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, and here's why I think it makes you weird because it makes you self-referential community that is inwardly derived will eventually grow toxic and hospitality is an externally focused community. It's, it's a way of saying the resources I have are to be used for the sake of others. And so mm. hospitality is externally focused community that is always drawing in people who are outside of our circles. I mean, biblically speaking, that just makes sense. That's not just a pragmatic thing, right? Because between the onset of the fall and Jesus's return, the command that God gives his people every time is the blessing that I have given you is to be stewarded and as a blessing to those around you, not just mm-hmm. among you, because the purpose of that blessing is to bless the nations. And when we get off track of that, it actually compromises. Yeah, we're weird, but we also become idolaters. Like we start worshiping other gods or putting our our, our desires uh, and our affections become disordered, like you were saying earlier. And it actually yeah. requires the consummation of redemption. 
it requires the new heavens and the new earth for God, for Jesus's like full return for us to be around him and therefore not turn weird or turn toward ourselves or turn toward uh, another idol. And so until he is there as the due north, the magnet, the catalyst, the, the center of all things, um, it actually requires us to trust that he is the center of all things enough that we love our neighbors as ourselves, as enough to practice hospitality. So that's actually a practice that drives us to a dependence on him in ways that keep us from getting so off course. I mean, mm. biblically speaking, that's just, yeah. that's the story of scripture. Yeah. I love how you said that's not just true. It's also practical. The great thing about, about the truth of scripture is that when it's true, it's actually also practical. I don't mean when scripture is true. I mean, because it's true, it's yes. also practical. Don't worry. Attention and imagination. I mean, music, narratives, images, they capture uh, our, our imagination. Our, uh, they capture us at the heart level, not simply at the cognitive level. This is one of the things that I think is so, uh, let me put it like this. There is a tragedy within the the Christian church that is the reality that men think that they're too cool to sing, or I don't know if they think they're too cool, but like, you can go into church on Sunday and the men that are there are like, they're singing, they're standing and they're not singing. They're listening respectfully, but they're not singing. I don't mean that in every instance, obviously, but music singing are ways of like working scripture into our hearts that shapes our imagination through repetition that stay with us throughout the, throughout the course of the week that actually form us more and more into the people that God's calling us to be. And then repetition, uh, spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, the, uh, the sacrament, scripture, prayer, worship, fasting, silence, hospitality, and more. They reinforce and instill values and principles in us. Uh, we, I mean, this just makes sense at a very practical level that repetition is critical to learning anything new, anything at first, riding a bike feels awkward at first, but through repetition, it becomes second nature to us. We, we also suffer. I don't care what form of identity you're talking about. Like this is, this is common. This is across both of them. In many ways, we see transformation or growth formation, et cetera, as input information output change, right? Mm. And what part of what is this list is demonstrating is how remarkably truncated and myopic that definition of, of formation is because yeah, yeah. one, it, even, even within, we even know this in education, like, like let's set the church aside for a second, right? The participation in sports and team and the character building of pushing through difficulty, like the social formation that happens when you uh, live in a college on a college campus, if you're lucky enough to to be able to afford that, right? Those are aspects of formation that may not be the the input of of information. Because how many of us, mm. frankly, actually remember what we learned in college? Uh, but what we did. But we, but what we have carried with us is the skills and competencies of learning new information and connecting with people who are different from us. And that experience is, is shaping in many ways. And so yeah. 
Yeah, this is this yeah, is the the didactic fallacy. You know, yeah. the didactic fallacy is I taught it, you got it. You know, <laughs> or I, I remember I had a, a seminary professor who said a lecture is a thing that passes from the notes of the professor to the notes of the student without entering the mind of either. Right. Dang. <laughs> oh, no, no. I mean, that's that's right. Like if you've ever read uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones on Preaching and Preachers, he talks about how when he saw congregants taking notes on his sermon, he would despair not actually capital D despair, but he would be disappointed because he said that meant that I wasn't making an impact on their affections. I was merely giving them information to remember. And mm. that is case in point. Yeah. And, and yeah. in some ways, like we know this to be true intrinsically, but it's not ex- an explicit, an explicit or conscious part of our decision-making filter. And so yeah. we're kind of like continually pursuing fast food instead of feasting on like really nourishing approaches to this. Yeah. So I, I mean, rep- repetition is essential to formation, but I also think that this is really important because repetition prepares us for the moment of crisis. And it, I think it's really easy to think that like, as long as I know, or even if I have it like in my notes somewhere that um, the right thing to do when the crisis arrives, I'll be able to like go back and access that. That's not, how real life works. I, I came across this quote from Colonel General Klon. He said, the idea that crisis will forge a leader, that he or she will rise to the occasion and display a depth of skill that was previously unseen is a uniquely romantic Western notion. <laughs> Just, I think that's such a, you know, the, well, this idea that Christ, that we're going to rise to the occasion, that just does not, you know, it, it looks great like in a in a in a romantic film, but it does not happen in reality. Dude, and, well, and if you need proof of that, consider the last year. I, I was just gonna say, okay, maybe you are a Christian listening to this, or maybe you're also a pastor. Either you or people you know will come to mind as as I describe this, but how many of us have neglected spiritual disciplines or or practices, which I would say at the top of the list is simply showing up to church on Sunday morning, how many have fallen away in the sense of feeling unmoored or unanchored, not feeling like we have the resources or the hope to sustain us in the midst of this? Because we are tr- now trying during the pandemic to start a habit, a, a, a ritual or a repetition that we have no experience and and no way of having the support of a community or a foundation to build it on. It's mm-hmm. we're now completely on our own in ways that we've probably never fully appreciated. That is a reality that has been exposed in our, that has exposed our deficiency in that. Matthew 11, Jesus says, I mean, well-known words, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Um, and mm-hmm. you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I, I, I came across the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrased this in the message. L- listen to this. He says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. 
I, I love this because spiritual practices are not ways of achieving our identity. They're not things we do to achieve our identity. They are ways of walking with Jesus and learning the unforced, unforced rhythms of life from him. What you're describing, Bryce, is so hard for us to fully wrap our minds around the ways in which we still bifurcate these things in ways that are not natural, right? You can take, you can hear everything we just said of, of these four facets or categories of how gospel identity is strengthened, imagination, attention, community, repetition. And if you're operating off of a a modernist identity, you will be tempted to go and then define each of those four things yourself, as opposed to put yourself under the way that Jesus defines them and the way God defines them in scripture and in the way that mm -hmm. he has sourced those uniquely, distinctly, and exclusively in the local church. Like you can't go out and get a coach, uh, a life coach on these four areas and hope to actually receive a gospel identity. The only way this happens is in the local church. The only place that happens is in the local church. And the only vehicle yeah. or or actually grace-centered and saturated identity can be found in the local church. And so it's your feelings about what you prefer in terms of like maybe this community or these people individually specifically resonate more with you or it's easier to be around them. Or maybe, you know, you find your imagination gravitating toward a certain expression. It doesn't matter. Like that's relevant. It's important. It's part of how you're wired. It's okay. They need to stay preferences. They need to mm -hmm. not be yeah. requirements or prerequisites up, right. above what scripture says about them. If they are, right, you are right. still operating off of a modernist identity. I have a friend that I grew up going to church with, and I ran into him just randomly a year or two ago. And uh, he just happened to mention he was he's coaching this volleyball team at like a local school. And he, and he said, he just made this phrase, that's my church. And like, I didn't ask him what he meant by that or dig in. So this might not be what he meant by that. But if what he meant by that was that's the community in which I am receiving spiritual nourishment, et cetera, <laughs> from, do you really think that the fact that you're an adult and you're coaching, like you're the power authority figure in the lives of that whole situation. That cannot be sufficient. You have to be in community with people who can correct you, who can challenge you, who you have to deal with when they do things you don't like. I mean, this is why you, your, your church can't be on Twitter and the, you know, people that you like there either. It, it's just, it's just not sufficient. It's not sufficient. Last aspect we have to talk about, I have to mention this, and we're going to get into this actually in more detail in a future episode. How is gospel identity strengthened? It's strengthened by the work of the Holy Spirit. And the danger, I think, with talking about practices, especially for Presbyterians like us, Brad, is <laughs> that we tend to be very intellectual and we think that the practices are what actually do the work of strengthening our identity but the practices aren't techniques. Like you said, you can't hire a coach to help you do them better. They are channels to release the power of the Holy Spirit who is in you. And it, we're going we're gonna to talk to Kyle Strobel in a couple of weeks because I, I don't know if you caught when we did this, but you know, a couple of weeks ago when we were sketching out this, this series, this podcast series, mm -hmm. we talked about all of this and like 
we made the classic Presbyterian mistake of like, we forgot to talk about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> uh, that's not shocking. It sounds like it's a good idea that the, or it's a good thing that the Holy Spirit prompted his presence uh, to remind us of that. Yeah, it's the Holy Spirit who is forming our identity, who is, you know, shining the light of the gospel on Christ and enabling us to experience the love of the Father, who is uh, building in us the the virtue, the character that is so necessary uh, to live in this world as we are shaped by spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines. Well, and just to connect that back to what I was saying earlier around how those things are uniquely, exclusively, and especially found in the local church. The reason why that is the case is that is where scripture has said and promised that the Holy Spirit is uniquely present and indwells. When the book of Acts says that the Holy Spirit is with you, the you there is plural. It's y'all, right? The Holy Spirit is not... Yes, it is. He is present within us individually. That makes it clear in the, in, at Pentecost when the you know the blue tongues of flame alighted on each individual person. But the primary locus for the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence is in the corporate body of Christ that is the church. Mm-hmm. It is, and it is by virtue of our inclusion in that that we have the Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done. And so that is actually the authority by which we can say these things and and why it's not going to be a receiving of an identity if you try to uh, break those out and define those yourself or, or separate those from their happening within the local church and your inclusion therein. Hey, let me just finish with this. Just at a real practical level, I feel like this should be said. There is no way for a Christian to live in this world, in any world, in any culture, with a pure gospel identity. Because we, as much as we want to be shaped by the church and by the scriptures and by the work of the Holy Spirit, we are also shaped by the culture that we live in. And so Christian formation, spiritual formation, is in many ways the process of catching ourselves living out of the old self or out of the modern identity and deliberately working Christ to the top of the various layers of our identity. And that's why I think when 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 Paul says, put off the old self, put on the new self, he's not talking about conversion. I think to your point earlier that the Bible never uses the word identity. I think that's the clearest place mm. that the Bible speaks about identity and identity formation. And that's what it says put off the yes. old self, put on the new self. That's that's a ongoing lifelong project that we are all involved in by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes. In so many ways, because Jesus has defined you through the cross and his grace atonement for you on your behalf, you have an identity that is transcendent of how you feel about it or what you do about it. It is yours. It is because you are located in Christ, and that is because of what he has done. And what we are doing in so many ways is putting off the old self of of dying to oneself so that we can increasingly live into what is objectively true of us. And and as we go, that sanctification process is the movement from being defined by Good Friday and Easter to living into Good Friday and Easter both. Thanks so much for being here with us today. I'm Bryce Hales with my friend Brad Edwards. 
Our new theme music was recorded by Danny Rankin, who also designed our logo. We'll be back next week with a couple of interviews as we dig deeper into this question of gospel identity and helping you navigate life in a post-Christian and post-pandemic world on Everything Just Changed. 